You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Bob Hughes. Good morning. My name is Bob Hughes. I'm uh, part of the pastoral team here. Uh, I'm, I'm what they call a bivocational pastor. Everybody needs uh, a unique title that nobody else has, right? Um, but what that basically means is that in addition to being a pastor, I'm also a, a small business owner. And so I kind of juggle a couple of different realms of life at the same time, which is a total privilege. I love that. In fact, it helps me remind the pastoral team that 90% of the people in the church probably have different callings than we do as pastors, and also hopefully to remind you that all of life is to be lived for the glory of God, whatever we do. So um, anyway, that's, that's who I am. I became a believer about 45 years ago now. Time is flying by. And uh, sadly, you know, though uh, God's been very, very kind to me, uh, for many of those years, I think I lacked a clear sense of understanding of, of the storyline of Scripture and how it all fit together. Um, most of the, my bil- biblical thinking was kind of pulling together pieces from here and there that, that gave me, I think, a good topical understanding of the Scripture. Um, you know, the, the, the term there is systematic, that you can think thematically or topically about what the Scripture has to say. But I don't think I had a very clear understanding of, of an ongoing storyline in Scripture. And, and I've also found that to be true with most believers. That may be true for you as well. And one of the most life-changing things for me over the last number of years has been that God's been helping me to understand that the Bible isn't just an accumulation of historical accounts or wisdom literature or prayers, um, that it's one overarching story, one overarching narrative that's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this story of Scripture isn't uniquely personal or individualistic. It's, it's universal and it's cosmic. It's the sto- like the song that we just sang. It's it's, it's a story of how Jesus is renewing not just individual souls, but he's renewing all things, including every aspect of life, relationships, work, and culture. And if we're going to see this storyline of Scripture correctly, we need to see that this story is not just a story, but it's the one true story of the whole world. It's the one true story of the whole world. It's the universal story in which all people in all times, in all places, need to find their proper identity and purpose. So in order to uh, get to this uh, story of the whole world together and our place in it, uh, we need to be sure that we see the story right, don't we? So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to use this morning to tune us and help us to see the story right. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for my friends. Lord, thank you for the privilege of gathering together in a, in a free society this morning. Lord, we pray, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Lord, we pray for a spirit of wisdom 
and revelation in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see the world and the story of the world the way that you see it, Lord, and that we would find our place as a people and as individuals and in every area of life within that great story of of, uh, the display of your glory in the world. We ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me start with a fun story. You may have heard this if you've heard it. Bear with me. Uh, Newlywed uh, gals in the kitchen getting ready to prepare Thanksgiving dinner, right? And her husband comes in and notices that she's cutting off the ends of the turkey. And he says, baby, uh, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm preparing Thanksgiving turkey. And he says, well, why are you cutting off the ends of the turkey? She says, well, that's how my mom taught me to do it. She says, well, why did your mom teach you that? Well, I don't know. Let's call mom. So they get mom on the phone. They say, mom, we're preparing Thanksgiving turkey and cutting off the ends of the turkey the way we always have. And we just wanted to know, why do we do that? She said, well, you know, I don't know, but that's how your grandmother taught me to do it. And uh, you better call grandma. So they call grandma. Grandma says, guess what? Uh, that's how I learned from my mom. And fortunately, great-grandmother's still alive. They get great-grandma down in Florida, probably, on the phone. And they say, Grandma, why do we cut the ends off of the turkey? And great-grandma said, well, when, when your great-grandpa and I started life, all we had was a tiny little oven, and we couldn't fit the whole turkey in. And so we had to cut the, the ends off to fit it in, in the oven, right? And isn't that interesting? It's a silly story, but it makes a point that we may not be aware of it, but for many of us, we may be living in a gospel story that's had the ends cut off of it, and we don't even realize it. It's just a part of our culture. So uh, let's take a look at our first slide. Okay, we got it up there. Okay, great. Well, this is called the truncated gospel story. The word truncated is an an interesting word. It means to abbreviate. It means to cut off the ends is basically what it means. And for most 21st century evangelical churchgoers, that's you and me, right? In a functional way, the story of scripture begins in Genesis 3 and it ends in Revelation chapter 20. Chapter 3 tells the story of the fall of man, okay? And Revelation 20 tells the story of the final judgment. And for most, the gospel story is fundamentally the story of man's sin problem and God's rescue from sin and judgment through Jesus Christ. Uh, It's a great story. It's a two-act drama, okay? And again, truncated means minimal, Um, abbreviated, and it's two parts. It's fall and it's redemption, Genesis 3 through Revelation 20. And this simplified, abbreviated story, basically, if we think about it, it begins with me and my need, doesn't it? And then it ends with God's solution to my need. And we could think think of all the times that we've shared our testimonies with one another, okay? And we'll hear that storyline. It's typically the testimony that begins with the story of of my sin, my brokenness, my need for a savior, 
and the amazing good news that God has provided a solution for me in Jesus Christ. And that couldn't be more profound. It couldn't be more true. It couldn't be more amazing, right? So then the question is, what's the problem, big guy? What's the point? The point is this. And listen to me. The point is this. The true story of the whole world is much greater than that story. It's much greater than that story. And uh, as awesome as that story is, the true story of the world is greater. So let's look at that together, okay? Let's take a look at the next slide. We'll call this the completed gospel storyline. It's not obviously limit difficulty with words, completed, probably not. Nothing that I'm going to teach you is completed, okay? But, uh, but a, a more complete storyline for us to, to consider. And so this more complete gospel story includes four additional chapters, and they're all critical. It's two chapters earlier, Genesis 1 and 2, and then two chapters at the end, Revelation 21 and 22. And this more complete gospel isn't a two-act drama. It's a four-act drama of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And rather than, in this story, rather than the story beginning with our need, the true story of the whole world begins with God. It begins with his self-giving love, bringing flourishing to the world, This story doesn't just end with people trusting a unique message about about Jesus Christ. This story ends with Christ enthroned and reigning and over a restored new heaven and new earth with God's people and the whole of creation resonating with the fulfillment of God's mission to see his kingdom come. On earth as it's his desire in heaven. It's a bigger story. It's a profound story. And the difference between these two versions of the biblical story just couldn't be more significant. They couldn't be more profound. And seeing this truth correctly has the opportunity to dramatically transform our lives, both with a more complex understanding of God's mission in the world and a greater clarity for how our identity and calling fit together within that mission. Let's take a look at the next slide, if we could, please. This is, uh, this is taken from Tom Nelson. Tom Nelson leads an organization called Made to Flourish that serves pastors around the country, around the world. And it highlights the, the acts of the four stories with, with some very helpful words. And under creation, you see the word ought. Under fall, is. Redemption, can. Restoration, will. And to just unpack these for a second, ought refers to God's original intent for the world and our role within it. How things ought to be. How things ought to be. How our lives were designed to reflect God's love, beauty, and glory into the world. 
is refers to the tragic reality that we live in a fallen world. How the world really is as a result of sin. How the world's brokenness affects everything in life. Our relationship to God. Our relationships with one another. Our relationship with God's creation, his world. Can, (coughs) excuse me, can refers to the life-changing resurrection power of the gospel. How this new life in Christ can transform who we are, how we see reality, and how we engage in the world, our relationships, and our purpose as a result. And finally, will refers to the ultimate hope that we have as believers, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, the assurance that God will finish the good work that he's begun, that he will restore all things for his great glory and our good. How how wonderful. But so in order to help this process, let's do a, a quick flyby of the true story of the whole world. And what I'm going to do, obviously, we've just got a limited amount of time this morning. I need to hit the forgotten chapters. Chapter 1, creation. Chapter 4, restoration. And see how this more complete storyline can transform our understanding of our lives, our vocations, that means our, our work, our homemaking, or whatever it may be, and our mission, the mission that God's entrusted to us together. We're in this together, aren't we? So let's look at creation. Genesis 1.1, if you've got Bibles. Does anybody have Bibles anymore? Do any of us carry Bibles? Or open your device or look on the screen if you want to. But page one of the Bible, page one. In the beginning, and here, the, the four first words of all of Scripture tell us so much. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And we discover from the very first words of scripture that this story isn't primarily about me and my needs at all. This book is a story about God. God is the main character. God's the one who's at the center of the true story of the whole world. History is his story. So wonderful. And God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing that we learn about God is that he's a worker. He creates the heavens and the earth. And the scripture tells us that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the, the, the literal word for that phrase, without form and void, means formless, empty, the wild and the waste. That's what, that's what everything was like before the Lord spoke the world into existence. It was the wild and the waste. And the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. There's this this fantastic sense of excitement and anticipation of, of God who's about to take on the wild and the waste and turn it into something wonderful, turning the formless into what's order, turning the darkness into light, transforming it all into something usable, into something beautiful and beneficial. And we see the unfolding story of this amazing, overflowing creator God making something from nothing and then taking that something and turning it into something even better 
It's something that's good. And all of this groundwork is done with someone in mind, isn't it? We'll look at that in a second. And God said, let there be light. And there was a light. And God saw that the light was good. Certainly, light itself is good. But who was the light uniquely good for, right? Uniquely good for us. Uniquely good for the humans. The focal point of God's work is the human beings to come. That's where we're headed in this amazing story. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And God doesn't just separate light and darkness. He uses each of them to bring order and structure and rhythms to the world to serve, to serve the humans, to see the divisions of time into day and night, morning and evening. And again, who's he doing it for? He, he's doing it to provide rhythms of life and blessing for human beings. And so at the center of scene one, we see God, our main character, giving himself, putting his hands in the dirt, taking what's formless and void, the, the wild and the waste, and bringing substance and structure and order that can then be built upon by the humans. He orders the earth and the sky, then the land and sea. Once all the structures are in place, God begins to fill it all with life. And we see in Genesis 1.11 that God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And God saw that it was good. And God calls forth vegetation from the earth. All kinds of good stuff to eat. Interesting that he specifically mentions fruit trees. I love fruit. I love peaches. I love Texas peaches. I love Washington cherries. They're good, aren't they? You've been eating Washington cherries this month? You need to get over to Kroger and get some Washington cherries. They're good. But again, it's highlighting again God's generous preparation for who's to come, the humans. It just doesn't say that he, you know, he, he, he created live oaks. Live oaks are great, but cherry trees are the bomb, right? <laughs> and God displays his glory, not just providing, but providing extravagant, beautiful, varied, delicious, nutritious foods for the people who are coming. And uh, it's amazing. Notice also that the plants and the fruit trees they all come with seeds, don't they? they don't, we don't just get plants and trees. We get plants and trees with seeds. And it communicates that God's intent in giving the plants and fruit trees isn't just to provide for our daily food, but it, it's to invite us to become a resource. for. It's a resource for the human beings, for us, to be an ongoing reflection of God's overflowing generosity in the world, learning to reproduce more and more plants, trees, animals, and to share generously with others, just like God's provided so generously for us. And it's all good, right? It's all good for the humans. 
And then we see in Genesis 1.26, we come to the highlight of this amazing intro chapter of the great story. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And the concept of being created in the image of God is, is something that's pretty difficult for modern people like you, you and me. We wonder, you know, of course, we think God looks like me, right? Maybe not. Uh, but we think it's how we look or it may be the, the image of God's reflected in our ability to think or reason. But like so many other areas of, of theological confusion... If we put ourselves in the shoes of the original readers of the scripture, we can get a much easier, have a much easier time understanding what's being said. And ancient Near Eastern people 3,500 years ago would have known exactly what was being communicated here. They knew that when a king conquered a new realm, he would commission artists and artisans to create elaborate gold images of himself. And these images or idols were placed in every corner of the kingdom. And the purpose was both to reflect the king's glory everywhere people went, that they'd be exposed to his majesty, but also to remind everyone uh, who saw the king's image that they were subject to the king's rule, that there was a new kingdom that had come in this, this part of the world. A new kingdom had come. And so interesting parallel that God creates his image bearers as his representatives over the earth. And though there's nothing in ancient Near Eastern records that refer to anyone but kings as being referred to as image, image bearers of God, the biblical story reveals God's desire not only to share his image with man, but also to share his royal authority with man. And in Genesis, the second half of verse 26, it says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every created thing that creeps on the earth. The Hebrew word for dominion is a a kingly word. And it it means to rule, to reign over, or to subjugate. So God creates man not only to reflect his image in the world, but as his representative vice regent. That's That's a governmental term that literally means under king. A vice regent is an under king. And God puts the earth the skies, the seas, and everything in them under man's authority and oversight. Theologians refer to this as the dominion mandate. Verses 27 and 28, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Plants, trees, everything. And it was very good. Very good. God blesses 
and commissions his image-bearing vice-regents, male and female, and puts them in specific places with specific relationships and specific tasks to be accomplished, to be fruitful and multiply, to extend God's blessedness throughout the earth, and in procreation to, to have babies and grow families and build communities that all reflect God's character and extend his good purpose in the world. And it's interesting if you think about it. When, here's a funny illustration. When, when cows reproduce, you get more cows, right? Which is good. I, we want cows. We like milk. I like steak. I like cheeseburgers. Okay, Milk and beef. Okay, that's good. But when people reproduce, you get more people. But you get much, much more, don't you? You get, and looking at, at, at the Genesis account, you get communication and community between Adam and Eve. Adam writes the first poem in all of history to Eve. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So we're getting poetry. When image bearers reproduce, you get the family dinner hour. You get, you get birthday parties. You get church barbecues. You get fireworks on the 4th of July. We get unique cultural expressions that every family and community enjoys. Grass is good, right? But wheatgrass, barley grass, when, when you add image bearers who thresh and winnow the grain, who add yeast, water, heat, you get bread. Bread's really good. You go from good to very good, don't we? The image bearer takes God's design, which is good, and brings that new element that turns things into very good. Grapes are good. I'm going to touch on, I hope I don't touch any toes here. Grapes are good. You can see where I'm going now. But grapes plus image bearers who cultivate, crush, age the juice and vats, you get wine. And wine is very good, unless you're a Baptist, okay? <laughs> so, repent and be Baptist. Isn't that what the scripture says? No, maybe not. Okay. When apple trees, when apple trees grow naturally, you get, in a, you get a certain degree of productivity. The apples fall. They have, there's more trees. But when image bearers in community take dominion over apple trees, subduing and subjecting, watering, pruning, cultivating, fertilizing, grafting, cross-breeding, processing, distributing. You get dramatically greater return on your apples and vast varieties of apples. You also get apple cider, you get apple butter, you get apple pie, you get apple pan dowdy. Does anybody know what apple pan dowdy is? I have no idea what it is, but I, I like to say it. <laughs> apple pan dowdy. It's got to be good. You get apple festivals. You get apple art. Isn't there a famous painting that's just an apple? Right? Uh, you get apple songs. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. Right? You get culture. We get culture. People don't just produce more people. They produce cultures. They create 
pies from fruit, blankets and clothing from sheep's wool, from trees. They make fire, furniture, homes, bridges, musical instruments. The wheels and trailers grow into cars and trucks and jet planes and rockets to Mars. And image bearers take sand and they they create roads and glass somehow and silicon microchips from sand, from silica. In communion with God and in community with one another, God calls his image bearers to reflect his character and extend his kingdom reign and his blessing to the world. That's God's desire. And this was God's purpose in creating the world. This is what ought to be. This is the ought. And it's what God still wants from us today. Next, we hit the next tragic chapter, the fall. We'll be very quick here. It's interesting. How long does God's ideal design for the world and his people last? It lasts for two pages in the whole Bible. Two pages and the thing's a blowed up sucker. It's, it's tragic. Man disobeys God, commits high treason. He betrays his stewardship. And so now we enter the story of fallen man, ever writing his alternative storyline, rejecting God's design for blessing and flourishing, placing himself at the center, taking for ourselves rather than trusting God and living generously. The result is alienation, alienation between God and man, alienation between man and man, alienation between man and creation, alienation between people and themselves. We don't know who we are. And where there ought to be wholeness, life, and fruitfulness, we now see life as it is with death, brokenness, and thorns. And Romans 8 says, all of creation groans for the release of sin's captivity. Let's flip to our next chapter. I'm taking more time on the bookends, as you can see. Redemption. Be brief here as well, which is so tragic. I'm so sorry, but limited time. Redemption. How beautiful that before we ever even leave the story of God's judgment on Adam, we see the very first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 that the day is coming when the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. How glorious. How amazing that God never gives up either on his image bearers or on his world. And even John 3.16 tells us that God not only loved his people, but that he loved the whole world and sent his son for the world. God's work won't be finished until his beloved son redeems and restores it all. Jesus, the second Adam, lives, thank God, the sinless, image-bearing life that Adam failed to live in communion with his father and community with his disciples. Jesus perfectly displays the glories of God's kingdom in proclaiming good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. 
And in the mystery of the cross, Jesus is crowned with the thorns of the curse. Through death as our representative, Jesus crushes Satan's head and rescues his image bearers. And having conquered sin, death, and Satan, Jesus is raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God the Father, where he re-inaugurates God's kingdom rule on earth, declaring that fallen humanity can be restored to God and can be restored to his purpose in the world. And prior to his ascension, Jesus tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me now. And he recommissions his image bearers to declare the good news of Christ's reign, to be fruitful, to multiply more image bearers, physical and spiritual, wherever they go, whatever they're doing into all the world, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all his, that he's commanded them, fully embracing the true story of the whole world and all of its implications. Let's look at the, the final chapter, Restoration. The final chapter of the true story of the world assures us that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. What began in the garden culminates in a city where Jesus is enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords over the new heavens and the new earth. Here, God's storyline is brought to completion with Jesus ruling and reigning with his image bearers from the new Jerusalem on the earth. Interesting, it's on the earth. We don't get evacuated out. We're not going anywhere. God is coming here. He's not throwing the towel in on his world. He loves his world and he's gonna restore a people for his glory and he's gonna restore his world and we have a part in that. So let's look at the end of the story. Let's look at Revelation 21. This is so amazing. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the, new, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Interesting. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, seated on the throne said Behold, I make all things new. And then in verse 22, it says, and look, look at this, this is unbelievable. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Look at this. And, its light, and by its light, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth 
will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. I mean, that is mind-blowing. Haven't you ever heard the line, don't waste your time polishing the brass on a sinking ship? Heard that? Have you ever thought about that in terms of the future of the world? It's totally wrong. The future of the world is that. Theologians would say that the kings represent God's vice regent image bearers who are bringing the fruit of their labors done in love and faith for the glory of God and the good of their neighbor. That there are things in this world that make it into the next chapter. The whole thing won't be toast. There are actually things that have been entrusted to us today that we have the privilege of doing for the glory of God, for the good of our neighbor, that have done faithfully. The kings, they bring their glory into the new heavens and the new earth. They bring, they, they bring the glory and the honor of the nations, the cultures that have been developed, the beauty of the communities that express the love and service and othersness of the God that we serve. It lasts. It lasts. And today matters in light of that day. So let's look, look just one last time at our, our outline here. So here's the complete story. And I would just encourage us. If you have been raised, like most of us, on a truncated gospel that begins with you and your need and ends with an evacuation out of here in heaven and that we're basically waiting until then for the Lord to press the button, whatever that button is. I want to invite you to to see and engage the true story of the whole world, the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, the story of how things ought to be, what God's beautiful design was for his world, what the problems of the world are as a result of the, of our, of the fall, the is, redemption, the can of new creation in Christ, and the will of the new heavens and the new earth. And the reason I put this up one more time is I actually use this outline almost daily to think through the different situations that I'm in relationships, challenges. And here's how I use it. I'll take a look at what, maybe it's a business problem. Let's, let's, let's say Sharon and I are going through a struggle. Let's go with it. Let's, let's go with a more common illustration, okay? Sharon and I are going through a, an issue. Begin with creation. What's the ought? Well, the ought is God called me to represent Christ in this relationship, to give my life. God called her to represent the church honoring and following. But, and it's very good. Our marriage is very good. Well, what's, what's broken here? Well, I, there's something I want that I'm not really uh, willing to be very patient about. And so I'm pushing for my way rather than looking how I can love, serve, and sacrifice for her. And, but the great news is that the gospel gives me new power in Jesus Christ to be a new creation where I can actually 
choose to say no to myself and say yes to my sweet wife and do what is needed to bring flourishing to my marriage. And even though it's imperfect, and it'll always be an imperfect marriage, we live in a broken world. And though the kingdom of God is broken in, we live in what's called the already and the not yet. There will be a day when all that God was wanting to work out in our marriage will be perfectly restored. And so the process is worth it because we're growing in Christ and we're looking forward to a day when we can present our marriage to the Lord as, a, as an offering of, of an expression of the gospel, a life lived for the glory of God and the good of others in that, in that vocation of marriage. You can do the exact same thing with a work situation, a relational challenge, a money challenge, how you manage your money. You can take any topic and use this grid to retool your thinking for how we now not only believe the truth of of the true story of the whole world, but how we begin to live and engage within the framework of the reality of the true story of the whole world. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Let's pray and let's ask God to, to help us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.